Isn't that cool? And I don't care who you are, when you're watching kids learn to walk, that, that should make you smile. And uh, as I, was, I was thinking about what we're going to talk about today, and uh, we're going to talk about God's will. And if you have your outline, we're going to tie in this video as we walk through this passage and this question. Here's the question that we have before us today. And this is a question, by the way, that was submitted by one of you in our series, You Asked For It. Here's the question. God's will. How do you know it's God's answer and not your own? How can I recognize when God is speaking to me versus my own ideas and thoughts about what to do? And we're going to be tied in mostly in Romans chapter 12, just two verses, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And I was, as I was thinking about this question this past week, the Lord just brought to my mind that often in the Bible, we're referred to in the New Testament specifically as children of God. It means that when we have that heart change and we are, we're radically changed and saved and born again, it means that God begins to grow us and mature us to do things that we would never do before. And as I was thinking about that, I said, you know, it'd be really, really cool to see a kid begin to walk. And I don't know if any of you that are parents have ever done this when your child is beginning to learn how to walk. And some of them, you're like, that's going to be a future football player because they do the crab walk. Right before they actually walk, and some start with the crawling, and then some, some just stand up, and, you know, and they're just like, I'm here. Like, what's up, right? And you've got all of that working together in a child, but I don't know of any parent that has ever seen their child begin to learn how to walk and fall just like that little girl and say, stupid kid. You, you're learning how to walk. Why can't you run? I mean, we're all quiet because we're like, that is severely messed up. Like even to conceive of a parent doing that to a child, and here's the point we, get, we want to get across today, that many times finding God's will and following him is an issue of maturity to where he is our father, he's the one who saved us, he's the one who's there helping us walk. Amen? Amen. He's the one who's maturing us because he's our father. So as we go through this passage this morning, I want you to kind of keep that in your mind because much of Romans is about the Christian life relating to walking in the spirit as opposed to walking in the flesh. For example, walking in the spirit means doing what we know that God is calling us to do and walking in the flesh is being like we would if God never showed up and that's fairly scary. Even for the ones who, who may be here today say, you know what, Jeff, I'm actually a nice person. Even if you're a nice person, that can't get you into heaven, and you need Christ to save you. So how do you know it's actually God and not your own thoughts? And how do you recognize if it's God who's speaking to you as opposed to something that you've thought up on your own? And here's a driving thought I want to get across to us as we walk through Romans chapter 12 and verses 1 and 2, and here it is. Don't let plans for next year paralyze your obedience today. In order to break down that thought and go to the text, we're going to look at four observations before we jump into the text because often when we say God's will, we've got a lot of baggage that comes along with that. So we got to understand what's actually going on so that we don't track mud into the house and then wonder why everything's dirty. So here's a preliminary. Here's a thought. Number one, if by, quote, God's will, we mean a comprehensive blueprint for our life we will probably never know that. There are some people who say, God, I want you to show me your will for my life. In other words, what I want you to do is literally lay out the entire plan for my entire life. That's not what we see in the Bible. 
What we see in the Bible is God calling thing, people to do things that are often day-to-day and short-term and giving us just enough light so that we'll be willing to take the next step. If you're taking notes, Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, the Bible says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. So in other words, how do you actually walk? And here's an observation that Francis Chan made in our studies, Forgotten God. He says, we can get so caught up in the big picture that we lose sight of the fact that God is simply calling us to walk. It won't necessarily be easy, but we can always put one foot in front of the other. What he's saying is that often when we come to the issue of God's will, we think that God's going to give us the complete to go 90s, early 2000s to print out the map quest. And that was not always accurate. Some of us that have ended up in other people's backyards, right? We want God to give us every detail, but often what we see in Scripture is God doesn't work that way. Second thought, we should know that coming to God, saying, God, I want you to give me the comprehensive blueprint for my life, that's not a biblically normal question. Again, God often gave very short assignments, even such as give us this day our daily bread. Francis Chan also says, quote, it's much less demanding to think about God's will for your future than it is to ask him what he wants you to do in the next 10 minutes. Ouch or ouch, right? It's very, very easy to look at the big picture instead of saying, Lord, how can I obey right now? Third thought, asking for God's, now I want us to, before I say this, I want us to focus very clearly because I don't want to be misunderstood. And we get emails, we want to make sure that they're properly understood, all right? So, so here's the thought, and stay with me. Asking God's will for, notice, my life could be an indication that you're a narcissist. Glad you came to church. Now, now I'm not saying that it's wrong or that you are a narcissist, or that you're an arrogant jerk if you desire God's will for your life. In fact, the very question is probably evidence that God's working on us. But again, if you are obsessed and concerned with God's will for capitalize my, capitalize life, all caps, bold, underline, italics, spinning circles around the letters, quote unquote, If that's your obsession, then you could very well be a person that is not focused necessarily on God's will for the world as it relates to you, but a person that is obsessed about you. You see the careful distinction. As followers of Christ, we should desire to do God's will. But if it's an obsession with how all of that relates to you, then you very well could be a narcissist. And it very well could be that the question even itself of saying, God, what is your will for my life, could be more of an exercise in wanting God to rubber stamp what makes you feel comfortable in your disobedience. And just, by the way, the sermon in the can of worms that we opened last week on forgiveness, if we are comfortable with our lives completely and there's, no, there's nothing at all that Christ points out that needs to change, we're probably reading the Bible wrong. Myself included. Like if we come to this book and we say, God, teach me from the scriptures, and he does not rock our world, we may need to listen a little closer. Because God loves us so much that he's willing to 
push us and create tension in our life, aka forgiveness, aka greed, pride, any sin that we put in there, and the fact that there's tension, the fact that there's uncomfortability, oftentimes just that, oh boy, I don't want to do this, but I know I should do this, it's probably a sign that we're truly hearing from God. Because God is more than a good coach, and even a good coach is going to grab you by the face mask, pull you, your face to his, and be so intense, sometimes he even spits. If you've ever had a spitting coach, and it's because he cares about you, and he cares about the team. Another thought here along with it could be an indication of narcissism is that it may just be me, but I've noticed possibly in our American culture at large and American church culture that a lot of it revolves around me. Toby Keith, I want to talk about me, right? That's an indication of our culture, and the scripture tells us that it's not about us. It's about God and his glory. The story of Narcissus, right, the, the old Greek uh, legend is that the, the youth was so beautiful he couldn't stop staring there at the pool at his own beauty. Wow, that is just glory be to God. You know what we have today? We have this. And there is an option for those of you who have smartphone cameras, the camera actually goes that way. It does, like it goes in front. But for some, they've not figured that out. <laughs> Stay with me. It goes this way. And so, no joke, and, and, and by the way, if, if, you're, if you're a selfie taker, that's, we're glad you're here, all right? So, we'll just leave it at that. So, here's the way it works out, right? Like, our culture as a whole, um, I remember, and I'll, I'll just confess this, when I was in high school, I had some workout buddies and uh, this was before smartphones. I mean, you actually had to take a picture and, and take the film to somewhere, and they had to send it off. And you had to wait. And then when it came back to be developed, no joke, we would actually take flexing pictures to see the progress. And I look back at that, and I'm like, I realize I have a fireplace, Lee. Like, something needs to happen. It was crazy. The narcissism, the focus on me. In our culture today, it's almost like, you know, we have this focus upon ourselves, whether it's our physical appearance. If you take a, a young lady who thinks that God is, has given her physical beauty, I mean, that can, come, that can come in a different way than a guy. A guy is like, man, I've been, I've been getting jacked, getting swole, just blowing minds, breaking hearts all at the same time. Oh, I'm sorry, I just flexed, I broke my sleeve, right? Like, that's the way that the guys do And sometimes the ladies, they're just like, well, I'm just taking a few pictures, like 200? Like, in its own album? Really? As if to say, hashtag, blessed to be beautiful. <laughs> Glory to God, it's all about him. Bull! I'll call bull on that, Right? So, so here's the thing, whether it's social media, whether it's presidential elections, whether it is office place drama, whether it is stuff going on at the home, we have a predisposed attitude to want to make sure that things point to ourselves. And I'm right in the middle of that because I live in the same culture as all of you guys. So when we ask the question, let's be very careful that what we're not actually asking is for God to rubber stamp what we don't want to do that we should do. We tracking? And I remember David Platt's book, Radical. 
Uh, rescuing your faith from the American dream. Man, that just, we went through that as a, as a church several years ago. That just wrecked a lot of us. You remember that, those of you guys who were here? I mean, eight weeks, the Sunday school classes did it. Eight weeks, we taught on it from here. And it was just absolutely, absolutely intense. And one of the things that he said is that if we do not go back to the scriptures, he said, we may have the most engaging, high-energy style of band-driven worship. I mean, all sorts of things and lights and fog machine and smoke and things like that. He says, but if we do not come to the altar of sacrifice to say, God, if it was not for your mercy, I could not live. He said, we're actually not raising our hands in worship to God, but we're raising our hands in worship to ourselves. And man, that was like a, I mean, that was just like a stake that went through many of our hearts. So I just encourage us, as we look at this topic from this passage, let's remember that it's not seeking God to rubber stamp our desire to not do the things that we're called to do that are hard to do. Final thought, and then we'll get to the text. Number four, we should beware of a subtle and a common, we could say, false dichotomy here, where it's this. God's will is always opposed to our thoughts and actions. In other words, somebody says, even the question that was submitted, how do I know it's God's voice and not my own? Here's a statement by A.W. Tozer that may shed some light on the question. He says, quote, the impulse to pursue God originates with God, but the outworking of that is the impulse of our following hard after him. All the time we are pursuing him, we are already in his hand. What A.W. Tozer is saying is that the very desire to pursue the will of God is evidence that God is at work in us. And so could it very well be, I mean, could it very well be that when God changes our heart radically, and he promises us in the Bible that he will slowly but surely conform us to the image of Jesus, to where we will look less like we used to and more like Christ. Could it very well be that our will, our desires, our passions become aligned with what God is passionate about? Because often we say, well, obviously I, God's will is here and my will is here. No, not if you're a believer and you're walking with him. Because even if it's tough and even if it's hard, God will slowly desire or cause us to desire what he desires for us. And I hope that's good news. Amen? So just the fact that I have a desire to do something does not mean that it's necessarily opposed to the will of God. And what a beautiful thing that God would give us the right desires so that we desire what's truly glorifying him and what will benefit us. So let's go to Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, now that we have the preliminaries out of the way. And here's what the Bible says, Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be, this is so cool, man, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now notice the qualifiers there in verse two for the will of God. All of these things the scripture says do so that you can discern or know the will of God, and here's what it is. 
whatever is good, acceptable, and perfect. So here are some steps laid out in this passage on how we come to discern the will of God. Number one, it's a requirement from the text that we get serious about worshiping God by dedicating our physical strength and talents to him. Notice he begins the appeal in verse one, which by the way, it's not a a demand, it's an appeal. Aren't you glad that the Lord appeals, amen? God does all sorts of things, but one of the the means that God uses is an appeal. And this word um, here for appeal, it's the same Greek word that's used for the Holy Spirit, the one who has come alongside, the one who has come who has come alongside us to help us. It means to appeal or encourage. It means the mercies of God. This is interesting in the original language. The word mercy here is not singular. The word mercy is plural. He's saying by the mercies of God. He's saying, man, God has been so good to us. Let me just appeal to you based upon that. And notice he says the first appeal is to present your bodies. It means to be serious about the will of God. means to come to God and say, God, everything that I am, the things that I know how to do, and those are the things that I know how to make, And for some of us, we don't know how to make anything. Like the skills and talents I have, the mind that you've given me, the time that you've given me, my precious children who remind me of that video, right? All the kids are learning to walk and colliding into each other. Everything that I am, God, I am, as best I know my heart, dedicating that to you. To present, notice what the text says, verse one, to present your bodies. Notice, and here's the really interesting qualifier And those of you Christian metal fans are going to love this. As a living sacrifice. Time out. That's straight up weird. If you don't look at the the background of the Old Testament. Because what usually happened to sacrifices. they They didn't walk around in and out. There was no zombie element there. The undead. They were brought. And their lives were given for the sacrifice. But notice there's this curious paradox in Romans 12:1 that we are to present our bodies as a sacrifice to God, but yet we're still living. You see, to find the will of God, we have to be serious about sacrifice and understand that sacrifice is an essential ingredient in actually worshiping God. It's like David in the Old Testament said, "How can I offer that which costs me nothing?" You know, maybe the reason why some of us, and we'll get into this next week, about dryness in our spiritual life. See, man, it seems like I've gone to church, and I try to read my Bible, but everything's just so dry and it's so dead. There's no vitality there. It very well may be that the reason why we have so much deadness in America and our walk with Christ is because we don't sacrifice jack squat, to quote that great theologian Matt Foley. We don't sacrifice, but man, the Bible says to present everything of what we are and who we are as a living sacrifice. The great Christian author G.K. Chesterton said this, courage is almost a contradiction in terms. It means a strong desire to live taking the form of a readiness to die. Mm, That is awesome. For those of you that God's just given you like a soldier's heart, you're a prophet, you're strong, be encouraged that the scripture, guys especially, does not call us, does not call us to weakness. Can you imagine being in the first century that when people got saved, it was often a call to die? Like actually physically die. 
And may it be for us as Rocky Mount Baptist Church having the freedom to be American and the freedom to live in the commonwealth of Virginia that's has so much rich heritage relating to liberty and freedom. May it be that we stop being scared. We've got to, and we're not saying we're being rude or jerks or we just, you know, unload something on somebody that's just not appropriate, but it means we've got to stop caring what people think. We've got to be more concerned about where they're going. And that's what the scripture is getting to. A sacrifice is not a halfway thing. A sacrifice is everything there laid on the altar saying it's going to bleed out. It's all given for the glory of God. And the reason why we don't see more, I think, in the American church is because we don't sacrifice. We come to church whenever it works for our schedule. We, we, we share the gospel even if we do that when it's convenient for us and we wonder why there's dryness. Because often the fruit that God produces in our life is, is saturated by the blood, sweat, and tears of sacrifice. And I guarantee you, if you sacrifice for Christ, whatever that may be, for some of you it may be taking what we talked about last week to the next level, saying, you know what, I'm actually going to sacrifice by asking a person to forgive me. And they were hugely in the wrong in that situation, but I know I was a little wrong. It may be that you sacrifice in that way and humble yourself and God will grow great things in your life. Philippians chapter 2, verse 17, the Apostle Paul says, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, this is so beautiful, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. He's saying that if God chooses me to pour me out as a drink offering to where I have nothing left, I'm glad and I rejoice with you all because the Apostle Paul was living for the glory of God. And also what this passage says is that we, in order to find the will of God, have to be serious about holiness. Notice what the passage says that we are to present, verse 1, our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It means that when we present ourselves to God, we don't get to the point to where we feel like we're good enough to present ourselves to God. You catch that? That we can never be to the point where we say, you know what, I'm, I'm good enough to sacrifice for Christ. No, sacrifice for Christ was first receiving the sacrifice that he gave for us, which is his son. And then also there in verse 2, it begins to pivot. In verse 2, it says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. What it's saying is to find the will of God is to get serious about conformity. And here's the question that I've had to ask myself. Jeff, who has the main microphone in your heart? Who has, who has the mic to where they can speak the loudest and the clearest? Is it someone that I know? Is it culture? Is it from a past bad experience? Or is it Jesus Christ through the word of God? You see, when the Bible says here to be renewed or to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, it's saying, you know what? Do not let culture make you who culture thinks you should be. Because what culture will tell you you have to be, especially if you're a young lady today, that your self-worth is equal with your physical appearance. It's not true, ladies. Your worth is from God. You're a daughter of God. He's the one who's given you everything from your eye color to your metabolism. Everything. 
The culture will want to say that it's simply the way that you look. How shallow. And may God, may it be that God gives the ladies in our faith family, our culture at large, freedom. Amen? To say, God has made me to be, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. And Proverbs 31, it, and it goes on and on about a woman who fears the Lord shall be praised. Charm is deceitful. It means if you're a people person, everybody likes you ladies, you're popular. When you put something on Facebook, everybody's liking it. Charm is deceitful. And beauty, and guys, don't you say anything about this, but beauty is fleeting. Beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord shall be praised. You see, it says don't be conformed by the world because the world will try, but it says be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Well, how is my mind actually renewed? How does my mind change from the old thinking patterns to the new thinking patterns? It begins with a changed mind and a changed heart about what life is, who God is, and who we are. And here's the skinny of it. The fact that God is real, that he has sent his son Jesus Christ to live perfect life, die, and raise, be raised from the dead, never to die again. And if I realize and understand myself to be a sinner and that I can't save myself and I can't extradite myself from my condition, and there is a day coming where I'm going to die, Again, welcome to church. That applies to you too. 10 out of 10 die. And that fact alone pushes me into the arms of Christ saying, God, say, Jesus, I need you to change my heart. Save me. Take over my life. And he does that. And you're radically changed and you're transformed. What the scripture is saying continually be transformed. Don't think that Christianity is an issue. Uh, well, there's a Sunday morning rocking my Baptist church. When the invitation was given, I asked Christ in my life. I came down one of these aisles and I talked to Jeff and he prayed for me. And therefore, it's done. Check. Here's my to-do list, bucket list. Check. No, the scripture says that's the beginning and I think many times the younger generation, the reason why there's so much pull away from church, they've seen deadness in churches. I'm about to get in trouble here. But people who preach like they don't believe the book, sing like they'd rather be somewhere else, instead of saying, man, if it wasn't for God's grace, I would have been in hell a long time ago, but he's allowed me to come and read the Bible. Come on. And to, and to have a voice that even if I can't sing, the person in front of me is kind of doing like this. I can still push air out to the glory of God. And I'm thankful because he's brought me through all of my junk and he's brought me here. And I don't know who this person is beside me, but they may have brought in more baggage than I could have ever conceived to carry. I'm going to see how they are. You see, when people see that, when they see real life, it's attractive and we need to pray for the churches in our nation that God would give a fire and a passion for what really matters. For what really matters. David Livingston said this, I'd rather be in the heart of Africa in the will of God than on the throne of England out of the will of God. So how do we put this into effect, these, these truths? Because verse 2 again ends with this phrase. It says that by testing, you may discern. To discern means to think clearly and hard. To discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Here are several questions that Paris Reed had, a preacher of uh, past generations, 
has encouraged Christians to look at. And here's a question when you come up to an issue of saying, God, what is your will in this area? And for students, that could be where you go to college. I remember um, trying to discern where the Lord wanted me to go, and there was a time to where uh, we were living in Florida at the time, and I, I took the day, and the Lord led me to fast that day, so I just brought, um, everybody else out there had beer, all the surfers, they get high on marijuana, and then they drink, and then they go surf. And uh, by the way, that's a cultural experience, if you ever want to go um, do that. Not smoke weed and drink beer and surf let me we may need to scrap that from the podcast episode but you guys knew what I was going the things that are not in your notes but but I went there and it's like the Lord led me to led me to to fast and to pray the whole day I brought out you know some covering there and just the word just the bible I wasn't even a study bible just you know straight no notes or anything like that and a pen and just to seek the Lord about where he would have me to go for some it may be a job choice for some it may be uh, if you're supposed to be in a relationship with this person or stay in a relationship with this person here's several helpful questions from Paris Reedhead he says number one is it or is this the decision is it according to the word of God meaning is there something within this decision or choice that would conflict with the clear teaching of the Word of God? Number two, is it in accord with the desire of my heart? Is it something that God has placed a desire in me to do? Number three, what do I want to do? If all was provided, if everything was provided and there were no restraints, what would I actually choose to do. And Colossians chapter 3 verse 17 says, let the peace of God rule in your hearts. And second action point here, you say, well Jeff, how do we, again, how do we put this into practice? I truly believe that to find the will of God would be for you and I to take advantage, listen, of every single gospel-centered opportunity. This is of mission trips. This is evangelism. This is Monday night reach out last Monday, 6 o'clock, last Monday of the month, to actually come and do what Jesus told us to do if we're followers of Christ, which is to tell people about Christ. It would mean um, take every opportunity that you can, if your work schedule allows, to be here with other believers at 7 o'clock on Wednesday nights to pray and to put our our thoughts together and ask for prayer. It means you take every opportunity you can to meet with other people, get plugged into a small group so you can pass ideas off of other people who may have walked with Christ longer than you have. It means take every opportunity that when you're driving down the road and you have a smartphone, you can actually pull up the Bible app and have the Bible read to you. And I like the guy with the British voice. It means that if you're serious if you're not playing around with it, but if you're actually serious about finding the will of God, you will eventually arrange your schedule in such a way that you're able to pursue what God says to pursue. We tracking? But to sit back and say, God, I want your will, and God clearly says many things in Scripture, you say, well, that's not for me. I'm not comfortable with that. You will never, ever find the will of God for your life. And it's kind of like, for those of you, again, to go to the beach, those of you who've seen jellyfish as opposed to dolphins, jellyfish are carried wherever the tide carries them, right? I mean, they're completely passive, but a dolphin will cut through the waves. I remember surfing one time, and there was this big wave, and the surfers ducked under it, a little duck dive, and there was, right before we did that, there was seriously this dolphin that jumps over the wave, 
And all these high servers are like, whoa, you know, just stoked beyond belief. Like, that was incredible. You see, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Often when it comes to finding the will of God, we say, well, I'll try to get to such and such if I can. If my schedule allows, I'll see if I can do what Christ has already called me to do. And I just get blown away by people who say they don't have time for what Christ says is important. And these are people who claim to be followers of Christ. And again, if you're new to church, man, we're glad that you're here. Let me just kind of talk about, for those of you who may be confused by people that you've known who've gone to church, but they're completely fake. Here's what basically goes down. Where people come and they get involved and they do the church thing, but there's no actual desire to do God's will because God's will may mean pulling them out of their comfort zones. We all right? But I've been amazed, you know, with the time thing, that many of the people that I've served with in ministry who are very active, often these people work 40 plus hours a week. 40 plus. Some work multiple jobs. Some are in school. Many have families and kids on top of that. Like if anybody had excuses for not being involved with what Christ says is important, I could name you names. I mean, here, other places I've been, but it's amazing to me the people who give up excuses about why they don't have time to do what Christ says is important. And if you claim to be a follower, but you're not willing to arrange your schedule with what Christ says is vital, then that's a heart issue. And finally, to find the will of God, it would mean to maximize the gospel in the mundane. It means that the things that don't necessarily think that they relate to anything having to do with the will of God, it means make Christ known there. It means that when you're at work and you are told to do a job that you do not enjoy doing, I don't know if that's happened to anyone here, ever. And it's not a suggestion, right? It's like, do this, and you're like, and deep down inside, you want to say, you do it, right? But you don't do that because you like your job or you like the paycheck, one or the other. When it comes to those mundane, common things, to find often the will of God means to say, how can I glorify God in this situation? How can I make much? Let's go to marriage. Let's say your spouse is just a jerk. You say, well, Jeff, I, I married him or her, and in the beginning they were this way, but now they're completely different, and I don't even really know what's going on. I'm trying to work it out, but they, they wake up on the wrong side of the bed every single day, and they stay that way. Like, how do, you, how, how do you find the will of God in that situation? It means that through humility and grace and trying to find something, and God has given all this creativity, not lying, but creativity, to speak life into them about. Some way that you can affirm them, even if they come home from work and they're just not fun to be with. So you know what? Thank you for going to work today. And it's that, right? Like, thank you for, I mean, think of things to where God can put in your life to where you can speak life into a difficult, arrogant, jerk, sinful husband and wife. Lunch may be really interesting for some today. What'd you think about the sermon? Especially the part right before we closed. <laughs> All of that to say that whether it's school, work, chores, marriage, taxes, it means that when we're walking with God, 
God will give us the ability to do what we would never be able to do without him and to find often God's will to say, where should I be? It's almost like, um, for those of you that ever looked at a map of Brazil, you see how massive the Amazon River is. In many places, it's almost like an ocean. It's just huge. But the Amazon River is fed by innumerable little tributaries, these small little creeks that feed into larger rivers and so forth and so on. And if we could say if the Amazon River was the wide will of God, the way that we get there is by little obedience in the small things. And you say, well, Jeff, it may just be a mission trip. It may just be one visitation. It may be for the first time actually being willing to go on a Sunday morning, connect with another group to study the Bible. It may be, I mean, talking to someone in my life where there's been so much tension like we talked about last week, and there's unforgiveness, and there's awkwardness, and it's just, it's, ah, I don't even want to go there. But it very well may be, be that in those, quote, small things that we obey God in, it's that little tributary. It's just a creek. You can't even put, you can't even do uh, the Pig River Ramble in it. It's just tiny, and you follow that creek, and then there's something else that God lays upon your heart. You know what? I want you to find this person that you know they're going through a tough time. I want you to give them an encouraging call. Tell them that you're there for them. Pray for them. Maybe give them some money, and that kind of leads into the Pig River, and it begins to get bigger and bigger and bigger, and slowly but surely, those small steps of obedience Time after time after time, and we look around, and we're in the safety of the Amazon River saying, you know what, I, am, I thought I was in a river, but buddy, now I'm in a river. Little steps of obedience lead to big things. And we've gone over this many times before, but Adrian Rogers, when I met him in 2004, he said, think small, then think big, because you can never think big until you first think small. Think small, then think big, because you can never think big until you first think small. And again, that driving thought for our message today is don't let so-called plans for the future extinguish our obedience in the little things today, because when we do that, we will be directed to God's will for our life.